Let's pray together. Father, you are so good to give us your word. And Lord, we praise you that in the scriptures, we have everything that we need for life and godliness. Lord, we praise you that though the grass withers and the flowers fade, your word will stand forever. We pray that you would help us now to build our lives on it. Make us people whose identity is derived from what the scriptures say about us. And Lord, we pray that you would release us from all legalistic attempts to win your favor and cause us to rest in the righteousness of Christ, that we might bear fruit for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I was preparing uh, to preach this passage this week, I listened to, I think, four different sermons preached by British guys on this passage. And at least three of those guys used the phrase, rubbish husband. <laughs> I don't know if that's a phrase they use all the time. Uh, a rub- if they refer to some guy that's a loser, he's a rubbish husband. Well, I don't know if they're listening to each other, but three of the four, ser- I think three of the four sermons that I listened to use that phrase. The reason they're, they're using this phrase, rubbish husband, is because in this passage, Paul is going to talk about how uh, we're, we've, we've, we've died and thereby we're released from the law, and he uses an, an analogy uh, to the way that in a marriage, if one of the spouses dies, the other is free to remarry, and if the remarriage happens, there's not, there's not adultery involved. And um, in, comparison, in, com- in comparing um, Christ to whom we're given now that we're dead to the law, to the law, the law, these guys were saying, is a rubbish husband. And, and one of them, I think, used a, v- a very helpful analogy. He said, imagine if the law was your husband. And, or, or imagine if the law was, was about to get married and you were, you were the best man at this wedding and you said to him, why do you love your wife? And this husband were to respond, well, I love her because she's always on time. I love her because she does exactly what I tell her to do. I love her because she carries out my instructions to the letter. And it's a good thing too, because if she didn't, she'd be out. That's a rubbish husband. Hopefully nobody in the room is relating to their wife wife in that way. That's a rubbish husband. And you compare that to the, 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 the husband that we're given to now that we're dead to the law. And the Lord Jesus doesn't say, you must do this so that I will love you. No, he says, I love you and I'm going to give everything that I am to save you. I'm going to lay down my life. I'm going to... To, to give all that I am to redeem you, that you might be mine. So as we, as we approach this passage, we need to back up a little bit, and we need to get our arms around the wider context so that we'll know what, what Paul is, is talking about here. And, and I want to I note that um, the law as given in the Old Testament, as intended by God, was not intended to be a rubbish husband. That, that is not the way that Moses uh, presented the law to God's people, and that will come out as we, as we continue through this passage. But a lot of what we're dealing with here in, Romans, in the first part of Romans 7 is still flowing out of what Paul said back in Romans 5, verse 20. 
And if, if you want to glance at that passage there, Paul tells the Romans that the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increase, increased grace abounded all the more. And again, I think that Paul is, is making an argument here for probably mainly Jewish Christians, but maybe some Gentiles who have been influenced by the Jews, that the law of Moses was not God's ultimate program for salvation. The law of Moses was not God's final remedy to the problem of sin in the world. And Paul is saying uh, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So and he's teaching the Romans, we're now under grace. And, and we've seen in Romans 6 how they begin, or he begins to anticipate objections to this. The first one in Romans 6.1 should we continue in sin to cause even more grace to abound? And Paul says, of course not. You've been crucified with Christ, so you're dead to sin, and, and we want to live to God. And then that prompts this next question in 6.15, where he says, well, since we're not under law but under grace, uh, should we sin? And, and the answer that there is, no, grace doesn't drive people to sin. Grace doesn't compel people to go commit acts of lawlessness. Um, to be freed from the law is to be liberated from slavery to sin. And if you continue to present yourself uh, to sin as a slave, you'll be enslaved to that. So, so you, don't want, you don't want that. And that brings us to Romans 7, verses 1 through 6, where he, he, he tweaks what he's saying. And what he's saying is that actually... Now that you're, you're dead with Christ, now that you're united to Christ in his death and resurrection, you're also released from the law. That's what he's teaching here in verses 1 through 6. So let's look at Romans 7, verse 1. Paul is going to tell us that now that we've been given to Christ in resurrection life, we recognize that the law was teaching us the meaning of sin. So Romans 7, verse 1, Paul says, or do you not know, brothers? For I am speaking to those who know the law. This could include, as I said, Jewish Christians, maybe also Gentiles who have been taught the law by those Jews in the church in Rome. Do you not know that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Now that's his premise. That's Paul's premise. And what he's going to do in verses 2 and 3 is illustrate that premise by uh, an example from uh, marriage. So here's his example of how the law is only binding as long as someone lives. Verse 2, for a, mar a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Okay, so you see the principle. The law is binding only as long as someone lives. And so in a marriage, for instance, we, we would take this view. We would, we would disagree with those who think that um, I would disagree, and I think the other elders would agree with me in disagreeing, uh, with the view that when Paul says a qualification for eldership is that that elder be a one-woman man. And I've heard of pastors who their, their, their first wife dies and they remarry, and then they resign their pastorate because, because husband of one wife is the qualification. I think that's a misinterpretation of that verse. I think that if there's a death of a spouse, 
the surviving spouse is free to remarry, and as this passage says, and no adultery has happened, and I don't think the person is thereby disqualified from pastoral ministry if there's a second wife that has come in after the first wife has died. So the point that Paul is making here, though, is that the law is only binding as long as someone lives. And then when a person dies, they're released from the law. Now what he's going to do in verses 4 through 6 is apply that to the Christians in Rome. So he says in verse 4, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. And notice that the analogy is not perfect, the analogy with marriage, because in the analogy with marriage, you've got a widow or a widower who's released from the, the first marriage, but now you've got the deceased who's released from the law, right? Because what Paul is saying is we've died with Christ. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. This is just another way for him to say what he said back in chapter 6 when he said that, that I think it's in verse uh, 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. So we died with Christ. And then he speaks of how we've been crucified with Christ. There in verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. When he says here in 7.4, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, he's just saying that in another way. Now, what Paul is doing is he is trying to liberate the, the Christians in Rome from the idea that to be right with God means I must be a law keeper. He's trying to liberate them from this false understanding of what it means to walk with God and how you please God. I think this is a distortion of what the Old Testament teaches. I think if you, if you read the Old Testament itself, you don't find that the law of Moses is a rubbish husband. No, you find a rule that will tell you how to live and how to love God and how to, how to love your neighbor. But it had been it had been distorted and it had been corrupted. And in our sinful legalistic hearts, we begin to think, if I check all the boxes, he'll love me. If I fulfill all the requirements, he will accept me. And Paul is trying to root that out, which is so deeply ingrained in us. If I do everything right, he'll be pleased with me. And Paul is saying, no, you're released with the law released from the law because you are united to Christ in his death. So I don't know if there's anyone here who's struggling with this and thinking, I've got to do all the right things in order to please God. And if, if that's you, these verses are addressed to you. These verses are written to try to deliver you from your legalistic heart to try to teach you that you're united to Christ in his death and resurrection and that by faith in Christ, God is pleased with you. So he says here in verse 4, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. Now, the, the marital analogy, I think, is continuing here. And I think Paul is saying it's like a, a woman who ha, has died, but she's united to Christ now, and Christ is her new husband in this new resurrection life. I think that's the, the drift of this, so that you may belong to another. It's like a, 
a woman who's released from the first marriage and she's now married to Christ. And in view of that, I want to go back. I think I mentioned this sometime recently. Uh, I mentioned this, this account that I heard of Kate Middleton, who is married to Prince William. And, I, and I, I told you about how when she was about 13 years old, uh, she was put into this school uh, where she was um, harassed and made fun of and bullied, and she only lasted maybe a term and a half at this school. And how one of her classmates said she was regarded by our peer group as a non-entity. And another classmate recounted coming around a corner and finding her seated on these stairs just weeping, just in tears at the way that she was being mistreated by her classmates. And it was so bad that her parents finally took her out of that school. And if, if, you, were, if you were here when I talked about this before, um, I, I related how I had heard uh, Rico Tice say, imagine if you could have come to her with a photo of her wedding day and found her on the stairs and showed her what she was going to be and how that would have revolutionized her identity. Now, I just want to stay on this for just a second uh, because I was, I was looking things up on this this morning and, and I found online, which who knows if you can trust what, what you read online, but I found online that her wed- estimates of the cost of her wedding dress run from 250,000 pounds to $434,000, which maybe that's the exchange rate. I don't know. I haven't done the math. But if your wedding dress costs, let's say, $430,000, how is that going to alter the way that you think of yourself? I read online that the cost of the wedding and all of the security amounted to between $32 and $34 million. How does that affect your self-conception, if you know this is what my wedding cost, and it's worth it because of who the prince thinks I am. And, and what we need to get our heads around, and this is, I don't, I don't know how to do this other than to meditate on it and to try to use little analogies like this that pale in comparison. What we need to get our heads around is the fact that our wedding cost the life of the second person of the Godhead. The Son of God gave his life to redeem us, to make us his own. That's who we are. That's that's the worth that God puts upon our redemption and the reconciliation of us to himself. I, I I just happened to to glance at, at Josh Philpott's Twitter feed this morning. I usually try to stay away from Twitter. I'm usually, I usually have a kind of negative attitude toward Twitter, but it's not all bad. On, on, Josh, on Josh's Philpott, Josh Philpott's Twitter feed this morning, I saw that he was, he was quoting a book called Atomic Habits, and it was recommending, this book Atomic Habits was recommending that if you're trying to make improvements in an area, like if you're trying to, to become... Uh, someone who exercises regularly, what you need to do is you need to think of yourself as a healthy person. And that when this becomes part of your identity, exercising regularly will be easy for you because you're a healthy person. Same goes for eating habits. And Josh said, this is what Romans 6.11 is teaching us. 
He says, when, when Paul says to us in, in Romans 6.11, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We can say the same thing about Romans 7, can't we? Consider yourselves dead to the law and given to Christ Jesus. This is who you are. This is how we must think of ourselves. And if we're trying to form the habit, don't, don't just think, I'm trying to overcome this one particular sin, or I'm trying to stop doing this or that. No, think of yourself as, I belong to Jesus. I've been given to him. He's my new husband, and I'm dead to sin, and I'm dead to the law, released from all that. Look at what Paul says next year in Romans 7, verse 4. He says, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. Now, let's keep this marriage imagery in mind because I think it's important. So that you may belong to another who has been raised, him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. We've seen this language of bear fruit recently in 621 and 622. Paul says in 621, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you're not ashamed? 622, uh, now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and it's end eternal life. So in the context, we've got fruit talking about sanctification, yes. But now here in 7.4, with this marital imagery, I think we've got another kind of fruit in view. Look at, look at what it says. So that you may belong to another, and the idea is another husband, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. I think this is be fruitful and multiply kind of language, fruitfulness. I think this is the kind of fruitfulness. It, I'm not saying it necessarily excludes sanctification, but I think it includes things like Jesus saying to his disciples, uh, lift up your eyes for the fields are white with harvest. Things like him saying, um, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the field. And, and uh, Colossians, Paul says in Colossians 1.6, that the gospel is bearing fruit and multiplying among them. So I think both kinds of fruit are in view here. Yes, the fruits of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, absolutely. And yes, evangelistic fruitfulness. We've been released from the law and given to the one who has been raised from the dead that we might bear fruit for God. And, and I would like to, to, for myself and for you, offer you an opportunity to reframe your thinking about evangelism. I, I think often we think, I need to be telling people about Jesus. I need to be talking to people about the faith. I need to, I need to get over the hump and get into that part of the conversation. Well, if we reframe this along the lines of um, um, the story of Cinderella, you know, where the prince is looking for a bride, and, and, and if you think of yourself as someone going to people and saying, do you want to try on the glass slipper? Do you want the high king of heaven? Do you want the great prince to be yours? And you know what? This glass slipper will fit your foot if you're willing to turn from your sin and trust him. That's really all it is. You, you can have him as your Lord. You can belong to Jesus. That's what we have the opportunity to do here. To say to people, you can be released from the law 
and you can be given to the one who has been raised from the dead. You can belong to Jesus. This, this can be your identity. You can be a new person. So last week, I, I gave you five things that I hope you'll be praying about and doing. And last week, I said you should talk to people for the sake of their freedom from sin. Well, this week, I'm going to say to you, we should talk to people about Christ for the sake of their freedom from the law. That's what this passage is addressing. And last week, I said, uh, coming out of 6.17, you become obedient to the teaching, obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching. Pray that God would entrust them to the teaching. This week, I'm going to say, pray that God would give them to the one who has been raised from the dead. Last week I said, be praying toward uh, March 24th. I'm going to re reiterate that this week. Also last week, be, be mindful of inviting people to worship with us and hear the gospel on Easter Sunday, April 24th. I'm going to reiterate that this week. Pray for us, the elders, as we think about future evangelistic events. We, we're going on a, a retreat where we plan to think about these things March 15 and 16. We want, Romans 7 verse 4, we want to bear fruit for God. The Lord deserves worshipers. God, God is the great evangelist. He is seeking worshipers. And we want to see people liberated from slavery to sin, slavery to the law. Paul talks about that, that awful situation in verse 5. He says, For when, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, we're at work in our members to bear fruit for death. As I was thinking about this dynamic, what, what helped me to get my mind around this was to realize that often, um, well, I, I, think, I think we can say universally, people that are not born again, people that don't know the gospel, people that have not experienced the liberating, life-giving grace of God in the gospel, they don't trust God. And they don't love God. And then I began to think about how I feel when, when people that I don't love and trust are in authority over me and start telling me what to do. And I, I resent the, the, the commandments, and I, and I want to break the commandments. I want to do exactly whatever I can do to thwart those people because I don't love them and I don't trust them. And I don't appreciate them being, being in authority over me. And I think that's the kind of thing that Paul's talking about here. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law. The law comes in and we resent it. Somebody says, stay off the grass. And on our devious hearts, we want to jump that fence and get out there on that grass. Our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now, verse 6, we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive. How did we die to that which held us captive? Again, first part of verse 4, through the body of Christ. Here again is this idea of union with Christ. You are by faith, by placing your hope and trust in Jesus, you're united to him and his death counts as your death. His resurrection counts as your resurrection. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. And, and what happens when this, when this comes home for us and we die with Christ and we're made alive, now we love and trust God. By the power of the Holy Spirit, 
The, the law that we formerly resented, we now recognize, oh, this is a way for me to love God. This is a way for me to love my neighbor. And we don't serve in the old way of the letter, but in the new way of the Spirit. And, and so I think there's both a, a conversion aspect of verse 6, and there's also a redemptive historical aspect. In other words, a, 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 there's this timeline across the Bible. And under the old covenant, you had this law... But then with the coming of Christ, there's this outpouring of the Spirit. And now that Christ has come and given the Spirit, we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. The new way of the Spirit is the way of being joined to Christ, the new Lord, and serving Him by the power that He supplies through the Holy Spirit because we want to do it, not because we're obligated or we think that thereby we will attain God's favor. So that's verses 1 through 6. And what this does is it prompts another question. And the question is there in verse 7. And, and in, this, in this next five verses, Paul is going to talk about the place and the role of God's good law. So he says in verse 7, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? So, so what Paul is, is after here is, is the law a bad thing? Is, is the law something that actually God gave to make people sin? And it, I'm just going to short, shortcut to the end. Look down at verse 12 where Paul is going to say the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So his answer to this is, as you see there in verse 7, by no means the law is not a negative thing. The law is not sin. The law was not given to make people sin. He says in verse 7 there, Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. Um, some of what Paul is getting at here is the way that um, people can seem like upstanding, moral, wonderful people, let's say, until you put them under the authority of someone that they don't love and don't trust. And then when they come under the authority of someone that they don't love and don't trust, and they start receiving commandments from that person, all of a sudden you see what's really down in there. And it's not that, it's not that the commandment is evil, it's that stuff that was inside that person is being revealed. That, that's what's going on. And, and the way that Paul talks here, um, it's, it's amazing how there's, there's a similarity between what happened with Adam in the garden and what happened with Israel at Mount Sinai and really through the giving of the Old Covenant and what happened in Paul's own historical experience. So it's like, it's like what happened with Adam is what happened with Israel is what happened in Paul's own existential life. So Paul is speaking in the first person singular here and I think he's talking about his own life. And, and notice how all these statements in... Uh, Chapter 7, verses 7 through 12 are going to be in the past tense. He says, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I, have, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. Um, the, the commandment, the tenth commandment, is you shall not covet. And I think that in its placement... There, there's, an important, there's an important reality in which um, 
you shall not covet is in relationship to you shall have no other gods before me and you shall make no image. So if there are no other gods before the Lord, the first commandment, then there will be no coveting, the tenth commandment. And, and I think that the relationship between those in part is uh, because you'll be satisfied in God. You, you'll, you'll love God. You'll trust God. What God has given to me is what I'm going to be content with. And I'm not going to desire what the Lord has given to someone else because I love him and I want him to rejoice in what he has. So I don't want to desire his possessions and, and not just desire them for myself in God's time, in God's place, in God's way, but no, I want what he has from him. I think that's the, that's the kind of desire that's in view, the coveting. So there's a, there's a connection, I think, between coveting and idolatry. Dissatisfaction with the Lord and his sovereignty over our lives. And Paul is saying, if the law had not communicated, if the law had not said, you shall not covet, this, this wicked desire would not have been revealed in our hearts. Then he says in verse 8, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment. So the problem is not the commandment. The problem is the way that sin used the commandment. And when he says sin seizing an opportunity, it's almost like what happened was sin established a, a beachhead or a base of operations that by means of the commandment. And from that base of operations, sin then attacks us. So sin uses the commandment, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So it's interesting, the word that's, that's rendered here, um, uh, covet and covetousness, this is, this is the word, a word that, that uh, can simply mean desire. And it's a word that um, if, if there's a good thing that's desired, it's a good desire. But if there's a forbidden thing that's desired, well, then it's a forbidden desire. And so, for instance, when, when Paul tells uh, Timothy that if anyone desires the office of elder, he desires a noble thing. That's, that's this word. This word is also used when Jesus says, um, if anyone looks on a woman so as to desire her, uh, meaning desire her sexually, then he's committed adultery in her heart. So the, the object of the desire is what determines whether, to, whether the desire is a good desire or a bad desire, which means that it's not just wrong actions that we need to keep ourselves from. It's not just wrong actions that we need to put to death. We need to put to death wrong desires. And, and when, you know, when you tease this out, if you desire wickedness and you keep telling yourself, well, but I'm not actually doing it, but I'm cultivating all this desire for it, well, it's only going to be a matter of time before you're actually doing it. And even if you were to, to keep from doing it, by cultivating the wicked desire, you're never going to begin to cultivate the desire for the righteous thing, for the good, ple the, 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 the pleasure that you're allowed to have. And what's going to happen is you're never going to be someone who's going to enjoy heaven you're, because you're desiring forbidden things. So you're cultivating a, a wicked heart is what's happening. So Paul is, is talking about the way the law exposes this in us. He says in verse 9, 
At the end of verse 8, he says, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. And I think, I think what he's getting at is the way that, that um, someone can seem like a jolly good fellow until you put them in the wrong set of circumstances. And then you get them in the wrong set of circumstances and you, you, you see uh, that uh, behind that uh, Dr. Jekyll, there's a Mr. Hyde who's really in control of this person's life and, and, and inner, inner spirit. So then he says in verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law. We read earlier in the service, Philippians 3, where Paul speaks of how uh, he, had, he was blameless according to the law. And, and I think the way you put these two things together is that Paul thought he was blameless. He thought he was keeping the commandment. And then what happened for him one day is he realized how searching the commandment was. He realized that the commandment extended beyond his actions to his desires and, and his, his pride and his wickedness and, and the evil of his heart was exposed. And he says here, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, it's like when he realized what it meant, sin came alive and I died. Uh, this is like what happens with, with Adam in the garden. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you may not eat. The commandment comes, and then sin comes alive, and he eats of the fruit, and he dies spiritually. Verse 10, the very commandment that promised life. Think of those words that Gabe read earlier in the service. Now choose life. See, I have set before you life and blessing the very commandment that promised life, not by means of perfect obedience, not by means of climbing a legalistic ladder up into God's favor. No, by being an instruction manual on how to love God and how to love your neighbor. And you can only do that if you trust God. So the, the very commandment that promised life, if he would love and trust God, proved to be death to me for sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the commandment provides the opportunity, the beachhead, the base of operations, and sin launches an attack from that base of operations and kills. And this all leads to the conclusion in verse 12 that the problem is not the law. The problem is sin, and Paul's going to deal with that problem of sin further in, in the rest of this chapter. So, the law, uh, so he concludes in verse 12, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. How do we respond to this? Well, the way that I think um, an, someone, if, if you're here this morning and you recognize that your identity is not formed by this idea that you've been crucified with Christ. Maybe you've even thought to yourself, yeah, I'm good with God, and I believe everything the Bible teaches. But, but you perhaps have not, as Jesus calls people to do, taken up the cross and followed him. And, and maybe you're, you're not sure what it looks like to go from being someone who, who feels like you need to obey the law to being empowered by grace. To, to serve in the newness of the Spirit. What we would say to you is, we want you to search your heart 
for all of the things that you covet, all the wicked desires that you feel, and we want you to recognize the, the wickedness of those things and the way that, that desiring what God has forbidden is really setting yourself up as God and rejecting him as your God. And it's, so it's idolatrous, really. We want you to recognize that, and, and we, would, we would urge you to repent of those things, to repent of your idolatrous coveting, and then to put your hope fully in this one who has been raised from the dead that Paul talked about in verse 4. And, and to think of yourself as dying to the law and dead to sin so that you can be given to Christ. This is what it is to become a Christian. To be a Christian is to be someone who's no longer trying to earn God's favor on your own, but instead you're repenting of your sin and you're trusting in Jesus who died to pay the penalty for your sin, and was raised to conquer death, which is the consequence of your sin. So if you'll repent of your sin and trust in Christ, you can have this new identity that we've been talking about here. The glass slipper will fit your foot, and your worth will be more than one whose dress cost $434,000, whose wedding cost $34 million. Your worth will be infinite, for such is the worth of the Son of God. If you're here and you're a believer, you already know these things, what we want to do is increasingly grow in our understanding that this is our identity. This is who the Lord says we are. We serve in the new way of the Spirit. We bear fruit for God. Because we're released from the law. Because, you know, it's interesting. He says the law came in and I died. So the law killed him. And he also died when he was crucified with Christ. So the law kills us. And then we're crucified with Christ. And we walk by faith in this, in this new resurrection life. If we walk this way, we will love and trust the one under whose authority we live. And we will gladly embrace his authority, his priorities, his agenda, and being commanded by him to serve others, to lay down our lives, won't be burdensome to us. This is what Paul is talk John is talking about when he says his commandments are not burdensome because we've received this anointing from the Spirit. If we have God, if we trust him and are satisfied in him, we desire only him and what he has appointed for us. Let's pray together. Father, you have been so good to us. Lord, I pray that, that you would do your work and that your word would cause new life in hearts who maybe until today have not known you, but also, Lord, that your word would define who we are and tell us to whom we belong and give us freedom and joy. Lord, we love you and we thank you for the truth of your word. We pray that you'd help us to, to build our lives upon it. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.